supported by the Village Mercantile in Saranac Lake, offering personal shopping assistance by phone with local delivery and curbside pickup available, 518-354-8173, or online at villagemerc.com. And by the River Course at Louisville Landing, golf along the St. Lawrence River. Early pricing on season passes, louisvillenewyork.com, or on Facebook, the River Course at Louisville Landing. This is North Country Public Radio, seven minutes past eight on this Monday, March 29th, the last Monday of March. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up, bald eagles have been thriving in the U.S. We'll hear how they've been faring here in the North Country in just a few minutes. New Yorkers over the age of 21 will be able to legally buy marijuana as early as next year under terms of a bill agreed to by both houses of the state legislature and Governor Cuomo. Karen DeWitt reports from Albany. By late 2022, adults in the state will be able to buy cannabis in retail stores and can also sample the drug in tasting rooms similar to wine tasting venues. They'll also be able to grow a limited number of marijuana plants at home, six per person and up to 12 per household. Both the governor and the legislature offered proposals. Senate sponsor Liz Krueger says the final measure more closely resembles the bill she and Assembly sponsor Crystal People Stokes had advocated for. It includes a community reinvestment fund for neighborhoods adversely impacted by the decades-long prohibition of the drug. I'm very excited at how far we got and how close this bill is to our original vision, which I believe will make us the nation leading model for marijuana legalization that puts racial justice in the foreground, balances safety with job growth, and encourages new small businesses. 50% of the licenses to grow and sell marijuana would be set aside for what's known as equity businesses, including people from disproportionately impacted communities and small farmers. They would have access to loans, grants, and incubator programs. The funds will come from a 13% sales tax to be charged on the sale of the drug. The revenues could reach $350 million a year. Some of that money would also go toward combating drug addiction, and the remainder would be used to fund public education. Melissa Moore with the national group Drug Policy Alliance says the measure goes a long ways to right the wrongs during the years of marijuana criminalization. The focus here on repairing the harm, given the scope of devastation from the marijuana arrest crusade in New York, where we've had more than 800,000 low-level arrests just in the last 25 years alone, with extreme racial disparities, despite the fact that we know that people use cannabis at similar rates across New York. But the enforcement has been so laser targeted on communities of color and low income communities that you know, that's one of the markers that's so different about this bill and the way that it's been crafted is it really centers uh, restitution for communities um, that have been harmed and sets up a social equity structure for the business side as well. The bill further decriminalizes possession of the drug, eliminating penalties for having three ounces or less of cannabis or storing up to five pounds at home. It would also expunge the records for people with previous convictions for amounts that are no longer criminalized. It would still be illegal to drive under the influence of marijuana, though, and local law enforcement agencies would get money to hire and train drug 
recognition experts. The bill acknowledges, though, that it's difficult to measure whether the drug is influencing driving behaviors. It sets up a research study to find better ways to detect whether a person is impaired by a cannabis product. A vote on the measure could come as early as Tuesday. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. The Potsdam Police Reform Plan will be presented to the Village Board for approval at a special meeting this afternoon. The Village's Police Advisory Committee held two public meetings and conducted a survey to get local input before finalizing the plan. Celia Clark reports. The final plan includes a recommendation to create a permanent civilian police review watchdog group. It also suggests a new system that allows people to submit complaints about police actions privately and without having to go to the police or be publicly identified. During the committee's final meeting last week, Greg Thompson, the village administrator, talked about what he's learned as a member of the committee. I learned that it's too easy to live in northern New York. It's too easy because we grow up in a, in a world where we're protected, we're shielded from the truth. And if you think inequity and social injustice don't exist in northern New York, you're, you're sadly mistaken. It's a very unfortunate truth. We live in a beautiful area that's stained by the sins of inequity and social injustice. They're there if you choose to look for them. Potsdam's committee regrouped after its two black members nearly resigned after saying some of the committee, including the police chief, weren't taking systemic racism seriously enough. Today's meeting will be live-streamed on the Village Facebook page. It begins at 4 p.m. The deadline to submit the approved plan to the state is April 1st. Celia Clark, North Country Public Radio. Get more news all the time at our website, ncpr.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You're listening to the 8 o'clock hour here on North Country Public Radio. It's 8.13. Good morning, I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Just ahead, we'll pay a visit to a paper mill outside of Watertown. That's coming up in just a few minutes right here on the 8 o'clock hour here on North Country Public Radio. We are a media sponsor for the first ever St. Lawrence County Arts Council Virtual Poetry Slam. Coming up this Friday, April 2nd at 6.30, 12 poets will compete against each other, performing original work in front of a virtual audience. Featured poet Sarah Cantwell will also join to read selections of her work. Tickets start at $5 and can be found at ncpr.org slash calendar. It's Martha Gallagher on the harp and Dennis Gallagher on the guitar. They live in Keene. The 
the 8 o'clock hour is supported by the ARC Jefferson St. Lawrence, supporting individuals with disabilities to achieve their goals for more fulfilled lives. The ARC, JSLC.org, the ARC Jefferson St. Lawrence, Achieve With Us, and the Osceola River Association, monitoring lakes and streams and finding solutions that reduce road salt pollution. Learn more at OsceolaRiver.org. There's minor flooding in areas around the Black River in Jefferson County, including Lowville and Watertown. The combination of rain and snowmelt prompted the National Weather Service to issue a flood warning yesterday that will continue into the afternoon today. Flood stage is 10 feet, and the river was at 10.1 feet as of 5.30 this morning. That's enough to flood farmland, flatland, and some roads. Commercial properties in the village of Dexter are expected to get minor damage. Also, damaging winds that could down power lines are expected today in southern Herkimer County and near Saratoga Springs. The Jefferson County No-Kill Animal Shelter on Water Street in Watertown is closing its facility until further notice after two employees tested positive for COVID-19. The remaining staff and volunteers exposed are entering quarantine at home. The SPCA's Petco Adoption Center will stay open. No visitors, members of the public, or volunteers were exposed. While it's been a tough year for humans, bald eagles have apparently been thriving in the United States. A report from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service found that the population of America's national bird has quadrupled since 2009. Ryan Finnerty spoke with Janelle Ho of the Northern New York Audubon Society to see how bald eagles are faring in the North Country. When we look at bald eagle populations in the North Country, it, it's similar to what you see nationwide and what was recently reported. There's definitely been an increase in the population. We're seeing more and more eagles on our bird walks and all, all of our outings. Well, when we used to when we used to do outings before COVID hit. In the the 60s, I think it was, we had gone to as low as one breeding pair of bald eagles in New York State. That's a pretty remarkable turnaround, it seems like. Um, where are we today? What are the approximate numbers? There's around two or 300 nesting pairs in New York is what the numbers that I found. And I think that that seems in line for what I've noticed in personal observations out in the field. Are there specific areas of the North Country or the Adirondacks where you are more likely to see a bald eagle than, than others? I've noticed in the, the St. Regis Canoe area, people see a lot of eagles. Also, the Allsable Point over uh, just south of Plattsburgh, that's another spot where they're frequently seen. This winter, I've actually been going to Messina often to go birding at the Robert Moses State Park. The water in the St. Lawrence River stayed open for the winter in some areas, so there's eagles seen, seen there quite a bit. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that we're noticing up here in the North Country is there might be more wintering birds around, and that could likely be due to a warmer climate, and there's more days where the water's open and not not iced over. And because eagles, they hunt for fish, so if there's ice, they can't they can't do that. And so we used to see a lot of birds going down south in the lower Hudson to spend their winters, but now there's more and more that are staying staying up here. And good for us birders who like to see eagles, but maybe not a a great sign of climate. So that's that's an interesting point because there's now um, in a couple of different ways 
the, the, the situation uh, in the natural world has changed. The climate's changing, which is impacting animal behavior. And then there's a lot more birds. And so communities and ecosystems that weren't used to having them for a long time, they've now come back. What kinds of, of changes or issues is that producing both for wildlife and humans? Seeing more eagles is, obviously people love to see eagles. That's one of those charismatic species. So when they see one, it, it brings that sense of pride and and make people feel excited. And that excitement could lead to something maybe not as positive for the eagles if people want to get too close or spook them. And maybe their habitat could get altered. Human disturbance is one of the primary threats to breeding. There's a double-edged sword there. Do you think more eagles being around will be a boon to your hobby of bird watching? Do you think more people <laughs> will get into it because of eagles? I, like I said, I think eagles are one, one of those species that people are just drawn to. I think they kind of have the same effect of maybe common loons up here in the Adirondacks. And it's just, just something that people, they really like to see. And now that I said common loons, maybe it's not a great thing for them <laughs> since the eagles do hunt the loon chicks. So there's something that we might be seeing a lot more of is eagles and loon interactions. That was Janelle Ho of the Northern New York Audubon Society discussing the resurgence of bald eagles across the North Country. Find a copy of the Federal Report on the Recovery of the Eagle Population at ncpr.org. Listening to the eight o'clock hour here on North Country Public Radio. It's eight twenty on this Monday. I'm Monica Sandreski here with Todd Moe. Coming up in just a minute, we'll take a trip to a Jefferson County paper mill. After that, stick around for Bird Note. That's coming up at 8.30. Brown pelicans dive from as high as 60 feet when fishing. How do they do it? We'll consider that more coming up in about 10 minutes. But first, we'll take a look at the weather. Right now, it's 30 degrees in Lowville and Boonville, 36 degrees in Port Henry, 27 degrees in Ellenburg Depot and Tupper Lake and 30 degrees in Ogdensburg. Areas of uh, clouds this morning, but becoming sunnier throughout the day for much of the region. Highs in the upper 30s, approaching 40 degrees for much of the North Country. Light snow in some areas, high winds, but clearing skies and sun tomorrow too, with highs in the 60s expected. About 13 miles west of Watertown is DeFerriot, a town that was built to house workers of the St. Regis Paper Company back in 1902. It became famous nationwide when the entire town went on strike for two years. Workers finally won the right to unionize in 1917. Wages went up, safety standards increased, and the relationship between company and residents improved dramatically in the following decades. Now, DeFerriot is located on an island in the middle of the Black River, which made the town isolated, or in the words of one resident, like living in a separate world. We're completely surrounded by water. So much of our village life was actually um, just here. You know, we, we didn't have to go very far to, to get anything else. 
That's Janet Zando. She's the mayor and former historian of Deferret. She was born in 1946 and experienced the town while it was still owned by St. Regis. In this conversation between Janet and North Country at Work correspondent Amy Fyreisel, we're jumping to Deferriot in the mid-20th century when the mill employed around 900 people. Here's Janet on how she didn't need a clock and why her pasta is just as good as her pierogies. The mill owned the whole village, and I was born in 46, so I remember that. Like, if your kitchen light went out, my mother just called the mill up. They'd bring over the light bulb, but they also would replace it. And every fourth house was the same color on the outside. And and every so often, you got your house painted. And then if it was, say, Zando's time to have their inside done, then they'd hand my mother, say, wallpaper books. And they'd say, okay, it's your turn to have, you know, wallpaper done in your house. She'd pick out what she wanted. She'd tell what room. And we never had to do it. They had their own painters, and they had their own wallpaperers hired by the, by the mill to come and do the work. That is like a totally different way of life. Yeah, it certainly was. It was wonderful. And the mill treated us really um, exceptionally good. And they, they, they really did a lot for the village. I have to admit that. I mean, you never even needed a clock. I mean, the whistle blew at 7 o'clock. That was the start of one shift. It was 12 o'clock noon. You knew as a kid to go home at, to eat lunch. And then at 1 o'clock, you went back outside to play. 4 o'clock, you went back in because the other whistle blew. So it was, um, as a child, your next-door neighbor might be um, a papermaker. And my father would, was in the office in the IBM area, but we all got along. We had to do things outside of the mill property to get along. We probably all went basically to the same church. And so, you know, you might be sitting in the next pew next to the chemical engineer who would be talking to the guy who's, who's on number six machine. Um, so you had to interact um, not only in the mill, but also on the outside. And I think that's why the community did as well as it did. I, I can't say that you might not have a beef with your neighbor once in a while, but we, we actually um, had to get along. I mean, we had no choice. There were, I read that there were like large Hungarian, Polish, and Italian yep. communities. Yep. Can you talk a bit more about that? Oh, yes. There was the Italian section of people, and basically they were Southern Italians. My grandparents and my um, uncle were from the north. Now, we had two sets of blocks. One was the Italian block where the southern Italians lived, and the other end of town were the Polish blocks where the two Zando families lived. My grandparents and my uncle were the only two Italians in the Polish block. Their customs were actually more like the Polish people, and everybody is considered Polish, whether you were Czech or Slavic or Hungarian or whatever other country you might be from, they always said, oh, you're, you're Polish. It was like a label. It wasn't true necessarily because there were many other 
entities, but they kept many of the customs they still kept up. Um, at Easter time, where the Polish people had a special host that was stamped that they would share at Easter because Easter was a much bigger holiday, a religious holiday, than um, even Christmas was. I would say probably 95% of the residents were Catholic. So were you considered Polish or Italian? I was Italian. You were Italian, but your family lived in the Polish block. Yes, we were the only two. My grandparents and my uncle were the only two Italians in the Polish block. So you grew up more around the Polish block traditions and oh, that yeah, sort of thing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I still make an Easter bread that both my grandmother always made, and I still try to make it on Good Friday, but some of the Polish people have taken my recipe because their families have died off, and they make it. So I can make, like, you know, pasta that my grandmother taught me, but I can also make the progies that I learned from the Polish people. So, I mean, DeFerry, it sounds like it was really made up of immigrants. Oh, almost, almost entirely. We often heard like my grandparents' generation, talking in their native tongue also. It, it was a different world here. That was Janet Zando. During her lifetime, the company sold the housing to workers and the village incorporated and established its own governing body. The St. Regis Paper Company sold the Deferrett Mill in 1984, and after years of declining business, the mill closed for good in 2004. You can read the full story online at ncpr.org, which includes more on the decline of the mill and photos of life in DeFerriot in from the 1940s through the 1960s. This story is part of our North Country Work Project, which you can learn more about at ncpr.org slash work.
was a music by Moira musician Eddie Lawrence. It's coming up on 8.30. Bird Note is next. The 8 o'clock hour is supported by Thomas J. Lombard P.E. Keysville, providing engineering planning and environmental consulting services to northern New York and Vermont, 518-834-7729. And Adirondack Health in Saranac Lake, recently designated a comprehensive joint replacement center. Learn more at adirondackhealth.org. This is Bird Note. Imagine a line of brown pelicans flying just above the breaking surf of the coast. Perhaps you've watched and heard these large, long-billed birds fishing. They circle high, then dive headfirst, plunging underwater to catch fish. But doesn't that hurt? Anyone who's taken a belly flop off a diving board knows the powerful force of hitting the water. Several adaptations protect brown pelicans as they dive, sometimes from as high as 60 feet. Air sacs beneath the skin on their breasts act like cushions. Also, while diving, a pelican rotates its body ever so slightly to the left. This rotation helps avoid injury to the esophagus and trachea, which are located on the right side of the bird's neck. Pelicans have also learned that a steep dive angle between 60 and 90 degrees reduces aiming errors caused by water surface refraction. We know that pelicans learn this behavior because adults are better marksmen than young birds. Upon impact, the brown pelican opens its bill and expands its pouch, trapping small fish inside. Then the bird pops to the surface, spills out the water, and gulps down dinner. For Bird Note, I'm Mary McCann. Have you seen our redesigned website yet? Check out the all-new birdnote.org today. It's 8.32, and you're listening to the 8 o'clock hour here on North Country Public Radio, supported by Casella Resource Solutions, serving the waste and recycling needs of homeowners and businesses. Online at casella.com. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. It's 8.32. There is still time to check out the film and discussion series from Clarkson University on gender and race bias in science. It's uh, through Clarkson University and the Computer Science Department. Today is the last day, but you can still register at tinyurl.com slash Clarkson Coded Bias. I have been checking it out over the last week. Uh, there have been wonderful discussions, and uh, including about um, one of my favorite panel discussions was yesterday evening called Change I Want for My Daughter, where there were uh, three pairs of uh, mother and daughter scientists discussing um, sexism in, the, in, uh, in science and how they envision that changing for the future. You can uh, listen back to those conversations when you register. And there are still more conversations today about um, algorithmic fairness and uh, racial bias in AI. That's this afternoon. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash Clarkson Coded Bias. Well, coming up on Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday, the Two Rivers Ecumenical Council will be offering an ecumenical Easter sunrise service this year. It's at Sunday Rock on Route 56 in South Colton. Again, it's a sunrise service, so gathering the gathering starts at 6.30. 
to greet the sun, which will rise at 6.36 a.m. Sunday. And uh, this will be an outdoor gathering, so social distancing guidelines are easy to follow. Again, it's Easter Sunday, a sunrise service at Sunday Rock on Route 56 in South Colton. We're back to Morning Edition in just a moment. Thanks for listening to the 8 o'clock hour. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Be well.